0: Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and take our seats. And please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. This is a series in Genesis, but we're going to do a little kind of a B-side sermon here in Romans chapter 1. So please stand if you're able. I'll listen to the passage read.
1: Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 23. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it's important to have the, the right response in certain situations in life. You know, first date, meeting the in-laws for the first time, all kinds of situations in life where you need to have the right response and when you receive an unexpected gift. So there's actually a decent amount of advice online as you might expect about what you should say and do when you receive an unexpected gift. So one website uh, said, don't lie, don't panic and lie and say, oh, you know what, I've got your gift. I just need to, you know, give me a minute, I'll go get your gift and then (laughs) run out to the store and then come back. So don't lie and say you got the gift. Be gracious, say thank you. You can reciprocate later if you like, if you can afford it. Try and say something about the gift in the moment. you know this is, this is just perfect for my whatever kitchen, car, whatever it is. Giving cash, apparently is a good thing. Uh, one of the best, best gifts people, people know how to use it and you know it will be used uh, according to their own preferences. But in none of these websites um, about receiving unexpected gifts did. Someone ever say, here's, here's what to do, though, if someone gives you a universe. <laughs> here's what you should say and do if someone gives you a universe. Our passage helps us to, under, to, to, to know what to say and do when someone gives us a universe. So the last two weeks, we've been talking about God's creation of all things. So creation from nothing two weeks ago, and then we saw last week that he did it in six days, all that he did. Right from the start, we've been talking about. What was true right from the start? What did he do right at the start there? Well, he, he made everything. And in many ways, he gave it to us. His, he gave it to people and said, here. And expected us to respond accordingly, appropriately, for getting this unexpected gift. So Romans is going to help us know how to respond. And it's going to point, obviously, as you... As you as you certainly uh, notice in the reading of the text, a lot of the ways that people haven't responded well in the, in the dire consequences of that. So that is true. In some ways, we're going to be focusing on verse 20 in this passage. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we want to think of creation as saying something and how we should respond uh, to that speech that is coming forth from us. Now this is, a, obviously, in Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, this is the most famous letter ever written, uh, without any close second, this is the most famous letter ever written. And so this is a letter he wrote to a church that he hadn't yet been to, so he intended to get to Rome, and in God's providence he would absolutely get to Rome, uh, but he did intend to get to Rome in, in, uh, in one of his missionary journeys. But before he did that, he sent this letter in advance. So he wrote this during his third missionary journey, which was his last, his third and last. He would end up in Rome after his arrest. This is about 24 years after he's converted, after the day of Pentecost. So this is a very mature Apostle Paul writing to this church. And one of the reasons it's so famous as a letter and so studied uh, and has been central to the church's thought and discussion is because the gospel is front and center in this letter. How can a sinful person be right with God? How can a sinful person be right with God? That's what this letter is concerned with. And so in the verses we read, there's kind of the thesis. You know, If you're going to write a long paper, you need a thesis. And so his thesis, we've already heard. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he begins to unpack it. And in a a very logical way, way to do that, he begins with the bad news. What is, what has gone horribly wrong, and how does the gospel fix it? That's what he's telling us in the book of Romans. And so in verse 18 through 320, he gives us what has gone horribly wrong for Gentiles and for Jews, and then how Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the solution. Faith in Christ gives us the righteousness we need to stand before God and be made right with him. And so when In the 3:21 through 3:28, we get that, and then there's a whole set of implications that follow for the next uh, 14 chapters or so. But our text is concerned with these opening verses of the kind of the letter proper, the body of the letter. Point one is going to be just a flyover of the passage. Point two is we're going to focus on this way that creation is a revelation of God, and then point three is the response so the passage the revelation and then the response and the goal is that we would leave here motivated to respond rightly to his creation which is it's not just out there it's it's in here we are part of his creation us we together are part of his creation and so we want to think of the whole thing and how to respond rightly to it let's pray father be glorified as the creator be revealed even today as the creator. We pray for you to open our hearts and minds to what is true. And despite the fact that we live in a world where so many reject what we're saying here, we pray that we would be happy worshipers, grateful worshipers, as we bask in the glory, in some ways, of the creation, because it points to the really the greater glory of the creator. Father, we thank you for the baptisms today. We thank you that you are saving lives in our church and through our church, and we pray it would multiply and continue. We thank you, Lord, for the young adult retreat last weekend and the several dozen from our church that got to go and be together in fellowship and hear your word taught and worship you. And we pray, Lord, the fruit would just continue for weeks and months ahead. We thank you for that ministry. Let it, let it be a fruitful, impactful ministry in the lives of our young people, we pray. And Father, with the the upheaval in the Middle East, we pray, God, that you would accomplish your great purposes for these descendants of Isaac and Ishmael at war now. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you, in the way that you do it, in the personal, mysterious way that you do it, we pray that they would turn to the Messiah, that many would turn to the Messiah as a result of this. Jesus is the Messiah. There is no waiting for another one. He is the Messiah, the true Messiah. So Lord, let there be, even in the wake of this South people, let there be revival in the land, in the Middle East, Lord, as many turn to you for salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, a flyover of our passage. Let me read again the first three verses that Michael read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. The gospel, uh, throughout the the missionary work of the apostles in the early church, the gospel would go to the Jews first, and then as the Jews often uh, had a hardened response to the gospel, then the gospel would would be uh, given to the Greeks, the Gentiles. And Paul rejoices in that, this gospel that is to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in this, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth." He's eager to preach the gospel, because in that gospel is this thing that you need and that I need if we're going to be right with God, which is the righteousness of God, that declaration that we are. Righteous. We are, we have met God's approval. And what he tells us is the glory of the gospel is that we hear that it's through faith, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how this happens. And our our passage, verse 18, for the wrath for the wrath of God is revealed is kind of an explanation of why it needs to be by faith. Why can't it be by just doing well? Living a life that's holy and pure and, and filled with good works. Why does it have to be by faith? Aren't we good enough to stand before the Lord? I mean, after all, if we compare ourselves with the people around us, we're absolutely above average. And isn't that enough? And that's where verse 18 comes in. This, this concept of the wrath of God and who it's, who it's upon. God's wrath is his holy opposition to sin. And it's it's not just a a blanket sort of vague type opposition. There's something personal about it. God's God's wrath is personally against those who are unconverted, who are not his people, those who are sinners. It's intensive and it's uncompromising. He does not grade on a curve. So if, if we go to him, and all we have is our sin and our best efforts, then we are, over, we are We are consumed with unrighteousness. We absolutely do not have what we need to stand before him. And his wrath will fall upon us violently and eternally. And so Paul's saying that this wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. By these people, these unrighteous people who are suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth. Not just innocently ignorant of the truth. But who are suppressing the truth. And what's the truth they are suppressing? The truth they are suppressing is that this creation around us is his. It is God's. It reveals God. So they're suppressing their knowledge of God. They're suppressing the knowledge of the creation. So it's a truth that's connected to the creation, which this is what ties it into our last couple of sermons about the creation. And what what Paul goes on on to say here is that when you suppress the truth, there are consequences of that. It's not kind of an innocent blunder. I'll do better next time. It's not really going to affect me. You know, you always get another chance, right? That's two out of three or something. But suppressing the truth has consequences. It actually affects us mentally. We become futile in our thinkings, futile, futile, in our thinking. Whatever chance we had at thinking well is shot, and we become those who think with futility. We can't think well. It's not, we, it's not that we can't think any single good thought. It's not that extreme. But our overall thinking is futile. We can't arrive at the right conclusions based on the evidence around us. And our foolish hearts go dark. Feudal in our thinking, hearts become foolish. And that's all because we've rejected the truth of God that's being proclaimed in the creation around us. So in other words, worship is a big deal. Worship affects us. If we worship the wrong thing, it affects us. At the deepest levels, in fact, our, our, our thinking and our hearts, there's nothing deeper than that. When those things are corrupted, you know, it's like a virus that works its way into our whole system, that affects us at the deepest levels. And so worshiping the, the wrong thing affects us in these terrible ways. Point two, the revelation. So now we want to think about this creation around us and what it's proclaiming. And at the end, we're going we're to turn to the right response that we need to have toward this creation. Now, verse 20 is where we want to focus for this point. This revealing act- activity of the creation. His invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Really important things here right off the bat in this verse. God is invisible. It's Sometimes it's helpful just to state the obvious. He is invisible, therefore his attributes are invisible ones in that sense. But his creation is very visible. And what Paul is telling us is that through this very visible, this, this, this thing that we can see, taste, and touch, and smell, God is also perceived In fact, clearly perceived. Clearly perceived in the creation. We clearly perceive his invisible attributes. And he highlights two, which in some ways encompass all of them. His eternal power and divine nature. What is it about God that's revealed in the creation around us? It's that he's eternally powerful, or powerfully eternal. In some ways it's hard to tell which. And he has a divine nature. He is the only one that where it's appropriate to say he is divine, he's deity, he's God. And eternal, uh, when we say that, we don't want to think just old, as if he, he goes back a long way. And we don't want to think he's everlasting. He also goes a long way into the future. He just the time His timeline is really, really long. He's different than those of us who have timelines. We live in timelines. There's a before and a middle and an after in our lives. God is outside of time in a in a completely different way uh, from the way that we live. We are inside time. He acts in time. He relates to us in time, as it were. But he himself is outside of time. He was there before there was a timeline. There won't be an after the timeline, but he was there before there was a timeline. He is eternal. It's always present. Hour before, middle, and and after is, is always present to God. He's powerful. He's eternally powerful. He's able to do everything he determines to do by his will. There is no limitation on his power to do all that should be done and all that he determines will be done. No resistance whatsoever. There's no friction when God just intends to do th- something. There's no resistance to him doing it. That doesn't mean people don't try to resist. We're not saying that, or there there isn't a devil who's trying to resist. But when God says, let there be, there simply is. And when God says, let it be done, it's simply done. So there's nothing in the universe, our sin, the devil, a world largely opposed to him, there's nothing in the universe able to prevent his power from doing exactly what he wants it to do at every moment. And he's divine. He's distinct from everything else. Everything else is part of the creation in some way. They might be spiritual parts of the creation, but they're still parts of the creation. He's divine. He is God. He's not like us. We are like him in some ways, but not in that way. He's divine. We are creatures. He is in every way imaginable God, And in some ways, that term is meant to summarize who he is, not to be a a kind of a pie piece of a a larger description of who he is. It's meant to summarize who he is. John Murray, in his great Romans commentary, uh, says that divinity here, divinity does not specify one invisible attribute, but the sum of the invisible perfections which characterize God. And all that, all that is being revealed in the creation. And so when that verse finishes by saying they're they without excuse, that's meant to say that no one can say, I didn't know. That's a sobering thought. And yet the creation itself is a, a clear, undeniable, continuous message, actually, of these truths about God. You can reject it, but you can't say you didn't hear it. So what's being presented here is this this creation is God's masterpiece, Creation is his painting. And as he's covering the canvas with this painting, this marvelous painting, in some ways, like in all paintings, the personality of the painter becomes clear, becomes visible in that painting. We begin to understand what that painter is like in some ways. Obviously, some paintings, you, you think, well, that's a very troubled individual. Whoever did that painting, that's a very troubled person. You know, certain pieces of art. But other paintings, you think, that is a very orderly, beautiful soul that created that. Someone who had a a keen sense of beauty. So, some things in this painting which are are just wonderful the the painting of creation we want to think about. What What are these clearly perceived things we want to think about? Well, it's helpful to remember that this painting exists, it had a beginning. You know, it's a something and not a nothing. Only eternal power can do that. Only eternal power, something divine, can make a universe from nothing. I, mean, I think science is very consistent now, if I'm not mistaken. that Our universe really did have a beginning. There's debate about before the beginning, but there's not a debate about, I don't think, any, anyway, about the beginning. And so we're saying, yeah, before the beginning there was God. And then he said, let there be a universe. And there was a universe. That's eternal power. And in this universe, there's not just stuff, things. You know, some massive Lego creation. That's not our universe. There's life in it. Life. That's a divine nature. A divine nature on display. There's life in it. And not just sort of random, reactive life, you know, plant or an animal. But there's consciousness. In people, there's a consciousness. We think things. We reason. People even use those consciousnesses to reject the existence of God. But by their very activity of using their consciousness, they're testifying that God is real. He's eternally power, powerful, and he is he is divine, and by their consciousness, they're, they're, they're testifying what C.S. Lewis talked about in his book on miracles, that there's something beyond nature, something beyond just, you know, just the physical stuff, that, that ability to reason, to think, that consciousness. There's something beyond nature. There's a fine-tuned, you, know, if you if you get to the macro level, there's this fine-tuned universe idea which is, which is out there, which is, I mean, I was a music major, the last science class I took was, uh, the first Bush was president, so it's been a while since I took a science class. I still think this is a cool idea, just the notion that the, our universe in all of these various intricate ways is fine-tuned. Anything slightly different and we, we are not we. We are a nothing. We never were here. If you can say that, obviously, with God's providence understood there. But the fine-tuned universe. If gravity is slightly different, the distance of the earth from the sun, the the moon being present, Jupiter, Saturn being close enough to deflect meteorites and all these kinds of things, speed of light slightly adjusted, all these things slightly tweaked, boom, it's over. The, then you, so you go from the macro level down to the, to the micro level, the smallest level, but not the smallest. I don't know what the smallest thing is. But you, you, get, you get to a cell, the cell in a body. And so now you go from the kind of the uber-massive, you know, this expanding universe, to the almost, almost infinitely complex a cell in a, in a human body. And then within that cell, there's a nucleus. And within that nucleus, there's this DNA thing, which is fascinating. And so in this, so John Lennox, um, he's a mathematician uh, who's studied in science in, in various uh, different ways as well. Great, great apologist. The human genome, so this, this mapping of the, of the DNA, the human gen- genome is the longest word ever discovered. And we call it a word because it's written in a chemical language of four letters. And you take that DNA strand in a, in a single cell and you... Uncoil it, stretch it out. It's six feet long. And you take that DNA strand, which has all this data in it. And so, as mathematicians can do, they translate that into gigabytes. You know, what would this be like if it was a computer? So, a DNA strand would be a, a gig and a half. Which means that all of those digital pictures you're trying to organize in your whole in your life. You could put, if you took, like, six cells, 10 cells, 20 cells, they would all fit. And there's 40 trillion cells in your body, just your body, 40 trillion cells. And, of course, all these cells are reproducing, some are dying, some are being brought or uh, reproducing to, rep- to replenish. And this all happens automatically. It's, it's the, the human body is simply the most amazing machine ever engineered. Now, when Darwin uh, was <clears throat> coming up with his, his theory of, of how we came to be, he talked about, well, we probably just all came from a, a warm, small pond. But to him, cells were just kind of like jelly, some goo, some, some kind of simplistic thing. He had no idea how complex, more complex than his brain could have imagined at that time. A single cell in a single body. So Bill Gates uh, has a great quote. He, just, he says, the DNA strand is, is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. And this is happening just naturally all the time, imperceptibly. We, the universe is a marvel, but the human, a person, is a marvel as well. That fearfully and wonderfully made idea, it's true. We are fearfully and wonderfully made that's eternal power in divine nature, clearly clear for us to perceive. That uh, intricacy of DNA, that's what motivated a, an Oxford philosopher, Anthony Flew, to turn from his atheism to theism. He just said, that's, that's God. That's something. That's something beyond us there. That's not just the accidental outworking of cause and effect. And he's, and he's right. That's eternal power and divine nature on display. So what do we do with that? Well, listen. Creation is speaking. Listen. In many ways, your body, even, when, even the broken bodies that we have, we live in a fallen world. Our bodies are very broken. And some of ours feel profoundly broken. And yet, even our broken bodies are profound reflections of God's eternal power and divine nature. Creation is speaking. Listen. Listen to his voice. Our God is great. Our God is great. Everywhere you turn, that's what's being proclaimed. Our God is great. Our God is great. Point three, the response. So this plain revelation plain to see paul tells us it's plain for it plain before us demands a response and he begins to unpack what kinds of responses are often given to this eternal power and divine nature that's being proclaimed all around us let me read verses 20 through 23 once again for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, so it's as if this, you know, to, to, just to continue our idea of an unexpected gift. So it's it's as if you're given this unexpected gift and you look at it and you think, ah, maybe not really. We we don't need to we don't need to put this up in our house. And so you you know you take this painting that you thought someone bought at a garage sale, and so you you take it to a garage sale and you get rid of it for you know, 25 bucks or whatever, because it's got a nice frame. And it turns out, oh, it happened to be worth $40 million. That's really what Paul's telling us. We have what fallen man has done. Fallen man, apart from Christ, sees this, this masterpiece and says, ah, it's not really worth that much. Let me just, I'd rather have 20 bucks than, than all of this. So let me just sell it, get the 20 bucks and at least I can go buy lunch. That's really what Paul is saying we have done as fallen creatures. And then we see that that, that decision has massive consequences. It becomes like a virus that, that's, uh, that roots down into our brains and our, and our hearts. And so we, we begin to think poorly and we begin to feel poorly. And there's lots of ways in our In our world, where people have, in a very sophisticated fashion, it's all dressed up and it looks nice and it's got PhD after it and all that, but in the end, it's simply a rejection of what Paul is telling us here, the the plain revelation of of the the world around us. So what are some ways that people have rejected uh, God's creation? Well, one theory is is the multiverse theory. So it apparently doesn't just live in graphic novels and, and movies, Marvel comic movies. Uh, but the idea that, well, yeah, the universe had a beginning, but that's because another universe produced our universe, and that there's this kind of uh, infinitely increasing number of universes that, that are necessary to get us to whatever, whatever the problem is and, in, in, you know, they're trying to solve. If you just add another bazillion universes, you can solve that problem. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, the evolution uh, uh, responses. Well, you just add another 10 billion years or 20 billion years or whatever, Give it long enough time and it'll happen <clears throat> so Michio Kaku is a great communicator and he's there's something about him which is which is well I've only read one book so I can just say that the God equation is a fascinating book but he really does marvel at the the intricacy the elegance the simplicity amidst the complexity of the universe there's something very worshipful about his 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 appreciation of of the handiwork he he sees around him but his, his ultimate Solution is that, the multiverse. But that Oxford philosopher I mentioned, Anthony Flew, he wrote of, of people kind of running to the multiverse solution. He says, it seems a little like the case of a schoolboy whose teacher doesn't believe his dog ate his homework, so he replaces the first version with the story that a pack of dogs, too many to count, ate his homework. <laughs> Our creation is the handiwork of God, who has eternal power and a divine nature. Now, what Paul tells us is that when you when you reject that reality, you begin to lose sight of well, you begin to lose sight of reality. Actually, uh, there's a there's an evolutionary biologist, Richard Lewinton, who actually taught at NC State for a period of time before his 25 year career teaching at at Harvard. So he did a review of a Carl Sagan book, and in some ways revealed his bias. Profoundly, his bias against you know his in some ways he's an example of suppressing the truth in a very uh, sobering, real way. Uh, He died in 2021, so Lord willing, he repented before he died. But this is this was an earlier point in his life. This is from 1997, a book review he did of a Carl Sagan book. He says that our willingness. To accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. So he understands that science can't explain these certain things, and yet he's saying in spite of that fact, we take the side of science in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. In other words, the, the, the physical stuff is all there is. There's nothing more. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar, Louis Beck, used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. You know, if, if, if is story didn't end so tragically. That, it's almost comical. How much you want to just say, yes, you are exactly right. Now, if you missed that middle paragraph, I know that was, that was dense language. What he was, what he was saying is that it's not that we have arrived at our, our belief that there isn't a God by our elaborate scientific experimentation and, 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 and what science has told us. No, he says we start. We start with the belief that there is no God. We start there. And then no matter what science will tell us or not tell us, we stay there. We do not allow, as he says, the divine foot in the door. In some ways, I appreciate his honesty, <clears throat> but it is, it is sobering to read that. So Tom Bethel responds to that, that quote and he says this, uh, Tom Bethel, Christian. He says, Why must the divine foot be excluded? The alternative is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, Lewinton wrote. Miracles have to be disallowed. There is some logic to that, but I think the real problem is far deeper. Some of our most ardent intellectuals simply despise the idea that they are subordinate to a creator who cannot be controlled, who tolerates evil, and to whom they must submit. He just meant that evil actually exists. Who tolerates evil and to whom they must submit. So they rebel. They refuse to serve. So they invented the fantastic philosophy of materialism. It's human pride masquerading as science. And that's why its defenders are so passionate. Their disbelief is based more on disapproval of God than on scientific evidence that he is superfluous. And, he, and he's a man who, who uh, wrote a very famous uh, uh, article for uh, Harper's Weekly back in 1976 where he, he talked about the mistake in Darwin. <clears throat> and so since 1976, he's been, he's been writing and reflecting on science. He's an Oxford journalist, an Oxford graduate who's, who's a journalist, but he's, he's been thinking about uh, science for a lot of years. He's a fascinating read. So all of this is to say... You're not a genius. You're not a genius if you reject that creation is the work of God. You're a fool. That's really important for all of us just as we engage a culture like ours. It's really important for us to remember that. You're not a genius if you reject that creation is the work of God. You're a fool. Your thinker is broken. You cannot interpret the world around you accurately. It doesn't mean that everything you think is wrong. But at this comprehensive, deep sense, your thinker is broken, and you simply can't see what's right in front of your face. Now, Paul's going to go on, and he's going to tell us that that was our problem. That's who we were. Grace is what pulled us out of that. It wasn't our great insights, our ingenuity. It certainly wasn't our scientific investigation that pulled us out of that. Grace pulled us out of that. God pulled us out of that. And we responded in the way that we celebrated this morning with conversions and faith in Christ that we marked with a baptism. We want to be those who respond appropriately to this creation. So, how do you respond when someone gives you a universe? Let's go back to verse 21 for although they knew God for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him honor him as God glorify declare that he is glorious it's worship we worship him how do you respond rightly when someone gives you a universe you look at this universe and you say you lord are glorious and we give thanks to him it is true that sometimes this creation around us is is brutal and harsh. And we experience things which are, are, are deadly even. We experience sicknesses and things that are, that are part of this creation. And yet every day, every day, there is, there is just a, a continual, uh, continuous uh, 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 truths and realities coming our way in this creation that we can give thanks for. There are blessings in the creation coming our way. We just have to have eyes to see it and a heart to embrace it. So some things in response. One is, one is to, there, there is kind of this, this, um, this categorical way that Paul is writing in this passage. But we don't want to miss the basic application, personal application that we can take away, which is that you need to personally, individually, give thanks and worship based on the creation around you. Use the creation around you to inspire you to worship and give thanks this week. John read from Psalm 98. You can go to Psalm 8. You can go to Psalm 148. There's a lot of psalms where kind of, which are kind of creation psalms. They look at the creation and then they call us to worship the creator. Take some of those psalms and make those a part of your, your personal prayer life and, and worship life this week. Those prayers before meals, they can feel perfunctory, but they're not. What's in front of you when you sit down to eat is God-given. It's part of a creation which is has blessings if we can see it. So yes, we, we pause and we give thanks to the Creator, which through this incredible act of, of His just sovereign initiative and then this, this we call it you know, typical providence or normal providence, far from it but, it, but still, normal acts of providence, which led to this cheeseburger in front of me, which I'm thankful for. Or salad, if it's... <laughs> thankful, thankful for that too. <clears throat> they all have their place. But just to see that a creator is behind this. This isn't just uh, just a a, a random mathematical possibility that I'm eating this meal. No, this is the work of a creator who's amazing, eternally powerful, and has a divine nature. Let me finish with two verses. If you you need more specific verses to go to, these are great. This is Romans 11.36 and then Revelation 4.11. And then I'll pray and close. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, what? To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why don't we stand and let's, uh, let's read those together. In fact, let's, let's raise our hands to the Lord just as an act of worship. And let's read Romans 11 and then Revelation 4. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. 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 Father, we give you praise. We give you praise. How good it was to sing songs of praise to you, our creator, earlier in the service. How good it is to reflect once again that you are the God who is majestic, powerful, eternal, divine, good, possessing a, a brilliance and wisdom we can't just totally comprehend. We can't, we can't pre- comprehend in the smallest degree. We can't even comprehend the complexity of our own bodies, much less this universe and you, Lord, the creator of it. You are glorious, Lord. You are glorious. You are glorious. You are glorious, Lord. We pray that we would, we would see the creation around us in that light, the glorious masterpiece of an even more glorious creator. Father, we pray for those in our lives, our families, our schools, our workplaces who don't see creation this way and we pray, Lord, that they would. Lord, use us somehow as you open their hearts and open their minds to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use us somehow as a means of bringing the gospel to their lives so that they along with us could see And worship. They could see and give thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.